Happy New Year, everybody. Isn't it crazy? 2010. 2010. I, I, I love the new year because it always gives the opportunity to examine and just see where you've been and the highs and the lows, spiritually speaking. Uh, our society is set up to examine, you know, we do New Year's resolutions and I'm, I'm not against those, but I'm more for examining spiritually where have you been? 2009. What are the highs? What are the lows? What made the lows low? Were you prone to wander? You know, it's good to examine all those things. And uh, biblically speaking, uh, what I want to do this morning, examine the highs and lows of a biblical character that I believe will help us as we draw application out of their lives to allow for a growth in wisdom, growth in grace, uh, depth in our love with Jesus. Because as believers and as uh, God's children, we really, knew, we really do need to make provision for the Lord to expand and grow our hearts. And uh, just like Britt was saying, this is stuff that you got to schedule and it comes at a perfect time, the first Sunday of the year. And here we are. This morning, we're going to examine the life of Elijah. So go ahead and turn to 1 Kings. I've always tripped out on Elijah because it's just an amazing story of this man that was documented. But what amazes me is that the New Testament will say of Elijah that he was like a man like you and I. He had a nature like you and I in James. It says that he was a man that prayed for rain, and it rained. He was a man that prayed that it would stop, and it stopped. And the application there is to be fervent in prayer. But I've always tripped out on the fact that it distinctly says he was a man like us. And yet when you read the story in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, you see that this was an extraordinary man. He was a prophet of God, but to help us understand a little bit more about Elijah and where he is, we're going to go back to 1 Kings chapter 16 to give us a little content of where he is. Um, it, we're going to start at verse 29, and before we start reading, I'm going I'm to pray and ask the Lord to give us... what we need for this new year. Father, you know our needs. You know where we are as a congregation. You know where we are individually. And I would ask, Father, as you've preserved your word, as you have preserved the life of Elijah, the, the, the testimony and the highs and the lows, we're asking that you would help us to draw out application that 2010 for us will be a greater year of intimacy, a greater year of growing. Our desire is to please you and to know more of you. And so we pray that you would set this time aside specifically to speak to the depths of our souls, our hearts, and our minds. We submit this to you. In Jesus' holy name, all God's children said, amen. amen. Well, at the time of Elijah, there was a king, 
of Israel. His name was Ahab. And you read that in verse 29. And of Ahab, you read in verse 30 that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than any other uh, kings before him. It would actually say later in uh, the chapter that he did more to provoke the Lord. In verse 33, it says that Ahab had set up wooden images and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than any other kings of Israel. And as you read this little text, you'll see that uh, he married a woman, Jezebel, who also set up and helped to establish the idol worship of Baal and Asherah. And so the basic backdrop of Elijah is that the nation of Israel was at its lowest, spiritually speaking, because they were led by a king who was at his lowest, provoking God, making him more angry than any other king, doing more evil than any other kings up until this point. And so that is our backdrop of Elijah. God calls Elijah into play because obviously God doesn't want to allow the Israelites to remain in this place of idol worship. And it was beyond idol worship. What took place sexually and all other things are hidden in the text, but they're there nonetheless. We read that the nation was given into this false worship, false um, idols that they worship and bow down to. And so God calls Elijah, and we read in chapter 17, verse 1, the Lord says to him to go to Ahab and say, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain, these years except at my word. This is Elijah speaking. He's telling King Ahab, hey, basically judgment is coming and there's a drought that is on its way. And the purpose is, is to draw the people back to God. But what happens next is um, persecution. Persecution of the people who love God and the prophets of God. And the queen Jezebel orders for the assassination of any prophet of God. And then, and so it spreads out and the persecution starts. And so God tells Elijah to go and to uh, hide in this brook where God will feed him by ravens. If you're familiar with the story. And there's a brook nearby where in this drought, God provides for drink. So in this time, God is providing for Elijah through these ravens and this little brook. But the brook dries up, and now God would speak to Elijah and tell him there is a widow with a son who will now provide and feed you. So Elijah goes, he finds the woman, the woman invites him into the home, and the woman says, hey man, we're running out of food. Matter of fact, we're looking to die. She says that, hey, this is probably our last meal. And ironically, Elijah says to her, okay, we'll make me some food first, and then we'll see what God does. And God, at this point, does the everlasting jar of flour and oil. 
the perfect ingredient for tortillas, right? And so God sends Elijah to this widow and her son, and they eat tortillas for every day. Maybe it was more like, uh, like a pita, but pita, tortilla, I mean, they're the same thing. But then the widow's son gets ill, and he dies. And so Elijah takes the son upstairs where he's staying at the house, he lays over him, and he labors in prayer. What we say, see of Elijah is a man who was obedient to God and who was not afraid to pray. He prayed for this young son, and he came back to life. And it was at that point that the woman says, wow, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true. The miracle of the tortillas, that didn't do it for her. But raising her son from the dead, she was like, wow, you are truly a man of God. And then when we read next, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of giving us a quick uh, overview, but now, at this point, when he raises the kid from the dead, God calls Elijah now to go back to King Ahab and tell him, hey, there's a rain that's going to come. The three and a half years of drought is over. And at this point, I mean, King Ahab is just doing idiocy. He's, he's taken his, his flock to go find uh, water. He doesn't care about the people. It, it's, it's just in shambles. The, the, the nation of Israel is still in shambles. And so rain's about to come, and God calls Elijah to go and declare this. And so in verse 1 of chapter 18, we see that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. And so to scurry on down to verse 17 is where uh, Elijah meets up with King Ahab. And it says this, that it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, it is you, O troubler of Israel. Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you and the, your fathers have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed, followed the Baals. Verse 19, he says, now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table meaning this, these are false prophets that are uh, supported by the king. It's unreal. And so basically, if you guys are familiar with the story, Elijah's calling down for a showdown, yeah. the smackdown. He says, gather everybody, Mount Carmel, meet me there. Kind of like, hey, after school, you know, meet me by the, you know, the, the parking lot, and we'll see. We're going to throw down. Because Elijah wanted to prove to the people and to the false prophets and to King Ahab that God and God alone was the one to worship. And, and so as... Ahab, verse 20, he does just that. He gathers all the children. He gathers all the prophets. There they are at Mount Carmel. 
Verse 21, Elijah came and he said this to the people. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. This was a very logical and useful question. Because in general, the people of Israel were in a spiritual lukewarm condition. They wanted to give some devotion to God, but they would fall into idolatry with idols. You see that throughout the Old Testament. And Elijah wanted to make it clear. He was, driving, he was drawing a line in the sand and saying, listen, no longer are you to falter, but you are to make a commitment. That word falter in the ancient Hebrew word is, uh, its meaning is to limp or to hop or to dance and leap to and fro. And basically, Elijah was saying that the, the Israelites were like this unfaithful partner in a marriage who doesn't want to give up the marriage, uh, but doesn't want to also give up the lover. They like both. They like the security of being a call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they also like the freedom that the worship of the Baal and the Asherah provided. Because it, at that point, they could do whatever they wanted, but there was this, just this necessity for religion is what it was. And so as Elijah is calling them out on it, he's calling them out on the carpet, their response is silence. And Elijah wanted to make it clear that there was a difference between the service of Baal and the service of God. The people didn't answer. Perhaps because they weren't willing to make a change. They weren't wanting to repent. They didn't want to defend their position. And so ultimately what they were doing is they were unwilling to examine their hearts. You imagine just scratching your head and saying, okay, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen God do some stuff, but man, I really love doing this. And, and, and the prophet's and, and the idol worship of Baal allows me to do all this stuff that I like to do. Friends, we cannot be like these people. When God calls you to examine your heart, you need to do so. Because there's a reason. There's a reason why he was calling them out on the carpet. Obviously, because they were drawn into idolatry. God often calls us out on the carpet. And the Lord has provided carpet for us to examine our hearts. That's what we do up here when we take communion. We're communing with God and we're doing as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me and what I did for you at the cross and what I did as my blood shed for you. Examine your hearts because God is faithful to always speak to his people in regards to idolatry or in regards to unfaithfulness as a bride. 
That's why it's so important to guard ourselves and not be like the Israelites who are unwilling to examine their hearts. They're unwilling to examine their hearts because they know that by doing so, they're going to get busted. Maybe some of you often find yourself reluctant to come forward because you know that God is tugging at your heart in regards to idolatry or in regards to whatever it is. Friends, in 2010, do not be reluctant to examine your heart as God would have you do so. May it be frequent that you do so. Because when we do that, we allow ourselves to be faithful to one master. Because Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't be for him. Excuse me, you can't be against him. You need to be for him. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a clear decision. And that's exactly what Elijah's doing is he's drawing a line in the sand. And as we see, their response is much like today, but not for us, right? Because today, as 2010, the first Sunday of the year, we, as his people, are going to respond and allow the Lord to examine our hearts. As we take communion together, we're going to do so without hypocrisy and allow the Lord to move amongst us. Amen? Because, yeah. I mean, you know the gig. The lights are going to go down low. The music is going to start. And the opportunity is going to be given. And you will have a chance to be like those Israelites, stuck or you repent, you get right, you confess, and you seek the restoration of the Lord. As we move on in the text, you see the showdown begins. I love this part. This is, this is the pinnacle or the obvious high of Elijah is when he calls out the prophets because he's so confident in his God, not in his prayers, not in himself, but he's confident in his God. And so, verse 25, Elijah says, you choose uh, one of the bulls, you prophets, there's many of you, so you choose the bull, but do not light the fire for the sacrifice, because whosoever God is God will provide the fire for the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal, they took the bull which was given to them, and they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, they said, hear us. But there was no voice, no answer. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And it was at noon that Elijah, and this is, this is the part I love. Elijah steps up and just starts clowning them. He just looks at them and he says this. You cry out aloud. Where is your God? Is he meditating? Is he busy? Is he on a journey? Perhaps he's sleeping. Maybe you need to wake him up. Some commentators would say that the actual translation that he's busy is that he was on the toilet. <laughs> Elijah was clowning him saying, is your God in the bathroom? Is he constipated? Where's your God? He was able to mock in such a way 
because he believed in the one true God. He knew there would be no answer because he knew and believed in the one true God. And so it is at this point that the prophets of Baal, with any kind of mocking, any kind of clowning, they start, they want to respond. Okay, guys, let's really dig in. Let's really cry out. And they start doing so. And in their frustration, the text says they begin to cut themselves with knives until they bled and the blood gushed out all over them. And it's true today that those who seek false idols, those who are drawn into darkness, this is the fruit of the enemy. Literally, people still cutting themselves. Literally, people spiritually cutting themselves. Why? Because we all know that false idols lead to destruction. Yet so many Christians find themselves in this place, faltering to and fro. Well, I'll go to church this Sunday, but oh man, not this one, because then I got to prepare for that, and New Year's party, blah, blah, blah. What? Choose this day. Falter no longer. And now, Elijah sets up his altar gathers the 12 stones, and I'm going to go down to verse 37 for the sake of time, but basically, he sets up the altar, throws on uh, his bull, and he prays this in verse 37. He prays to the Lord, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that you are Lord, and that you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And it was at that prayer, at those very words that, bam, fire came from heaven. Consume the sacrifice. Consume the stones. Consume the wood. Consume the water. Everything. Why? Why was it so elaborate? Why, why the water? Why the stones? Why all this stuff? Because there was to be no shadow of doubt that God is God and he alone is worthy to be worshiped. Friends, we know this today. He's the same God today. He has revealed himself to you in like manner. Maybe not a fire from heaven, but you know God has moved in your life, and you know it to be true that there's no shadow of a doubt that he and he alone is worthy to be praised, worthy of our meditation, worthy of our devotion. The story takes an interesting turn at this point. Because at this point, the fire consumes the altar and the sacrifice. And I've been there at Mount Carmel. Because Elijah now goes up to Mount Carmel. And, and the text says in verse 42 that the man got on his knees, put his head between his knees, and he prayed earnestly for rain. Don't miss the obedience of Elijah. For 2010, set your heart to be obedient. Jesus says, you love me, then you'll obey my commands. This was a very obedient man. 
But interesting that in his obedience, as he prays, he prays earnestly and the rain comes. The cloud comes and he goes, tells the servant, hey, where's the cloud? Is the cloud coming? He keeps praying earnestly. And the, and the cloud finally comes and the rain finally comes. And then King Ahab gets in his chariot. He books on down. He wants to go see his wife, Jezebel, and tell him, dang, craziness, the fire. And, and you can't forget the fact that Elijah, after all this, he says, hey, gather up all the, the false prophets, 850 of them. The Bible says that he killed them all with the sword. Basically, he was saying, it's enough. No longer will you lead God's people into darkness and destruction. And so Elijah, there at the top of Mount Carmel, praying, the rain comes, the chariot takes Ahab, and, and now this man of God, this man who prays for rain and it rains, prays for a drought and it prays for the dead, and now we find out he's a track star. He gets and he runs, and he's running faster than his chariot. This is a crazy story. And now we find ourselves, um, King Ahab goes to the queen and tells her everything that has happened. All the prophets are dead. It's crazy, woman. And the woman responds like this. The woman says, okay, let's kill that man. She doesn't respond, oh, wow. His God is God. Our God never showed up. He was on the bath. Where, where was he? No. She doesn't repent. She throws a threat at Elijah and says, in 24 hours, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah, <laughs> Elijah at this point, believes her. Jezebel's threat in verses 1 through 3 in, in, in 1 Kings 19 puts Elijah in a tailspin. And so we find that he runs. He goes 80 miles to Beersheba, which is in Judah. And not only to that city, but when he gets to the city, he goes even further into the wilderness. Read with, with me in verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under the broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He goes into the wilderness, he isolates himself, and he prays that God would kill him. This many, mighty man of prayer, this man who raised a kid from the dead, who the Lord provided through a, a sparrow. I mean, I mean, this is incredible that now he finds himself in a tailspin in such a depression that he's saying, God, kill me. And thankfully, God's answer was no. Ironically, Elijah is one of the few men in the Bible that never died. Because he was taken up in a chariot. He never died. 
And here, in the depths of his depravity, he's asking God to kill him. He's saying, it's enough. I've had enough, Lord. I can't do no more. At this point, he was so stressed out, so exhausted, he was tapping out saying, God, I'm done. It's enough. And I really believe that we've all found ourselves in that place. See, because for him, it may, things may not have panned out like he thought they would. At Mount Carmel, at the height, maybe he thought King Ahab and his, the queen would repent. Maybe he thought the children of Israel would all go on a fast and repent. But things weren't turning out that way. And instead, he hears this threat on his life from some woman, and he runs into the wilderness, and he says, Lord, kill me. I've had enough. It's, I'm, I'm done. And I think if you're like me, we've been in this place like Elijah where you just, like maybe your job is not panning out like it should, like you thought it would, and you're saying it's enough. Maybe your marriage is not panning out like you thought it would, and you're ready to tap out, and you're saying it's enough. Maybe the ministry you're a part of is not panning out. Maybe there's relationships that aren't panning out for you and you're ready to tap out. And like Elijah, God wasn't done. If God was done, he would have taken them. If God's done with you, he would take you. But we're all still breathing air in here. And the reason? Because he's not done. It's not enough. Just when you think it's enough, God and God alone knows when it's enough. God knows. Why does he know? Because he knows all. He knows the beginning to the end. He knows where you are right now. He knew where Elijah was at this point. In the depression and in his depravity, God knew where he was. And the, the beautiful thing I love about this story is that God was just as much in the midst of Elijah's life in his depths as he was in his heights. And I, I don't know about you, but that ministers to me. To know that in my stupidity, in my confusion or in my uh, time of stress, God is just as much God as he was as God on the Mount Carmel calling upon rain or fire or, or raising people from the dead. God is God. He never ceases to be God. And friends, may that comfort you in your hours of struggle. But nonetheless, do as Elijah did, because at this point, in his depravity, you'll find that the events are interesting on how God responds. God responds this way because God knows the big picture. God sees him in his depression, and God and God alone knows the remedy. The remedy was himself, his presence. But see, Elijah wasn't going to get that until God ministers to him in his physical needs. Read with me. It's interesting. Verse 5 says this. Then he laid and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. 
Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake bread on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he laid down again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. Here, God extends mercy to his son, Elijah, and meets his physical needs. God knew that Elijah needed rest at this point because he was stressed out and he was in a funk. And I love that God said, mijo, go to sleep. Take a nap. He wakes up, he says, here, eat some food, go back to sleep. And he does it a third time. What does this display to us? That the rest that is needed for humanity is not to be overlooked. As a people who are so prone, and, and especially as Americans, we get so busy, so caught up in stuff and doing things that we get exhausted and we start doing stupid stuff. God instituted a Sabbath, not for the sake of religiosity, but for the sake of rest and time with him. That was the remedy for Elijah to meet his physical needs. Because remember, God cares for both our spiritual and our physical needs. And here we see that display, that God was willing to take the time, not only one nap, two nap, but just a long nap. Now, obviously, you don't want to take this all the way, and all of a sudden, you're just a nap happen fool, just napping all the time. But I know, personally speaking, that this is an area that the Lord busted me, where I get so busy, not willing to rest, not allowing the Lord to nourish me the way I need to be nourished. I like what Charles Spurgeon says in regards to this. The spirit needs to be fed, and the body needs feeding also. Do not forget these matters. It may seem to some people that I ought not mention such small things as food and rest, but these things may be very first elements, the very first elements in really helping a poor, depressed servant of God. God knew that he was stressed out. God knew that he was in a place and he responded to him by telling him, hey, just take a nap. Because it was at that point that God would be able to go on and to meet the bigger picture, the spiritual need. He met his physical need, then he's about to meet his spiritual need. Verse 9 says, And there he went into a cave, this is Elijah, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And this, Elijah kind of responds in his frustration. The frustrated Elijah says, 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. I tore down their altars. I've killed the prophets. Oh, now I'm left alone and they seek to kill me. I call this the Eeyore mentality. (laughs) Woe is me. But listen, it's interesting to me that it's recorded that God allows the frustrated Elijah to vent. And I can't stress enough, friends, that when you and I are in this place, don't neglect to tell the Lord when you're overwhelmed. Go to the Lord when you're stressed out. Go to the Lord when you're feeling overwhelmed. Go to the Lord when you're feeling confused. Because somehow, I think as as Christians, we feel like, well, that's not right to go to God and tell him that I'm struggling. When I go to God, I got to be confident like Elijah in prayer, confident and bold. But see, the interesting thing is, is again, God is meeting him where he's at. And the frustrated Elijah telling him, I really believe, helps him to unload his burdens. Literally, as he's telling him his frustration, the burdens are being lifted because ultimately God's going to meet his needs. And ultimately, God knew his needs. And God knows your circumstances. He knows your frustration. He knows when you're stressed. And he wants to hear from you. But unfortunately, as his people, we either don't respond or instead of going to God, we go to the bottle or we go here, we try to numb it here, or we just watch TV to try to make everything go away. Stress will go away if I remain on my course of stupidity. I'll get out. I'll dig out. I can do this. Just makes sense to me that as God has already proven himself to be God, then let him be God in your life. In your hour of stress, in your hour of stupidity, go to God. God, I'm struggling with this. God, my eyes are here. God, my thoughts are there. God knows already. But there's something that happens when you unload that to him. He's able to minister. And the fact is, is that here Elijah, as he's crying out, the Eeyores, oh, I'm alone. He wasn't alone. There was a hundred other prophets. He wasn't alone, but Elijah had powerfully shown the unreasonable nature of unbelief and fear. That honestly, you just get confused and stupid. And the remedy was to rest, to be nourished, and then this. Watch, verse 11. Then he said, go out. This is God saying to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, 
But after the fire, a still, small voice. God knew what the depressed and discouraged Elijah needed. And that was his presence, himself. God brought his presence before Elijah, but first he showed Elijah where he wasn't. He said to Elijah, I'm not in the wind, I'm not in the earthquake, I'm not in the fire. Because like others, Elijah probably was looking for God in a dramatic manifestation. And certainly God does that sometimes. He reveals himself in a, in a dramatic manifestation. But often, God is speaking and wanting to do a work through a small, still voice. Sadly, the noise of our lives often drowned out that soft, still voice. We don't have the concentration to meditate on the things of God because we're constantly bombarded with TV, radio, iPhone, i this and I that and 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 you know what I'm I'm just I'm in the same boat you know we get so consumed we're Facebooking this or our hobbies are here or maybe your family is consuming you whatever's consuming you friends make sure you in 2010 set time aside where you're able to hear the voice of God that soft still voice look this season to grow to go to God with an open ear, an open mind, an open heart, and an open Bible. Because to hear the soft, still voice of God audibly, I don't know. I can't tell you if you're going to hear an audible voice. But what I do know is how God has spoken to me, and that is through his word. And so time of devotion, times of prayer, times of, of, of really meditating. As Britt said, this is time that you got to set into action because otherwise it doesn't happen. And so this is uh, God wonderfully reminding us that I am in control. I know where you are. I know where you're going and I want to speak into your life. And so we just got to silence the things of the world. You know, sometimes God will minister to us on a walk, the bluffs or on a drive on the 101. We just got to be willing to turn out or tune out the world. Give them some time. Because it's not always in devotion. Maybe it's, it's, it's just, you know, I spend time, there's my moments where I know where God meets me. And, and friends, if you have those places and those times, then make sure that you're carving out proper time of devotion to God. So he can speak to you. Because as he does with Elijah, and don't miss this, because God in this season has us in this uh, Missio Christi, this mission of Christ. We're called to be on mission. And ultimately, God met Elijah where he was to set him back on mission. God gave him the moment that he needed. God allowed him to be replenished. God met him with the still small voice. But ultimately what God tells him is what? Remain in your stupidity, Elijah. No. 
the soft, still voice says, arise and go. Ultimately, what he's telling them to do is he's telling them to go to uh, the mount where he's going to meet him even more radically. There was so much more in the life of Elijah what God wanted to do, and it was through that soft, still voice that God wanted to reach his hand out, pull him out of the muck and mire, and get him back on mission so that he is able to pass on the baton to Elijah, that he's able to do what God had set into motion. Ultimately, God wanted to put Elijah back on mission. And as we look to be on mission for Christ, we cannot miss the intimacy Christ with Christ that is needed to navigate us, to direct us. Ministry flows from intimacy. And as we're looking to be on mission, as God was looking for Elijah to remain on mission, He didn't want Elijah to remain where he was. He met him where he was in his depths. He met him where he was. He even gave him ample time to recover and to recoup from his funk. But ultimately, God called him out of it by telling him to go, arise. He was telling him to go to Mount Sinai. God God was going to use him to anoint another king. There was so much more to be done. And God looks at you, and he knows what needs to be done. He knows the work that he wants to do through you. He wants you to remain on mission. But friends, we cannot be successful on mission if we're not spending the intimacy that is required for God to speak into your lives. And so for 2010, here's what we do is we close the service by saying, God, what adjustments do I need to make? What in my life needs to be dealt with. As you come forward to examine your hearts, ask the Lord, where in your life are you crowding out his voice? Are you in need of rest? Is your physical body in need of rest and replenishment? Maybe for you this morning, there's just a need to repent like the Israelites when the line has been drawn in the sand, you're faltering. You're guilty of faltering to and fro. God is calling you to make a commitment. God is calling you to make devotion to him. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. First Sunday of the year, we're going to make way to repentance. We're going to make way to proper examination. We're going to make way for God to do a greater work for his glory, for his purpose, not for ours, not for the sake of... Of, of, of just being able to say so, but for the sake of being able to, like Elijah, stand in boldness and say, I know that he is God, the one true God. Amen? God, we love you and we thank you for allowing us this opportunity to engage with you. And we ask that you would have your way with us, Holy Spirit, that you would bring to remembrance any areas where we are faltering Lord, just convince there's people stressed and busy and you want to speak to us, so we pray that you would give us ears that are attentive to hear your voice. We pray that you would give us hearts that are soft to the moving of your spirit. So you have your way now, Lord. You have your way. We trust you. We love you. We believe you. 
We ask these things in your name. Amen.